Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. If you've been with us during this series, either here at Quest or online, uh, I hope that you've been challenged. I hope that it's been a good experience for you. Your foundation of who you are in Jesus has grown, has been solidified. And I'm certain that if you were here last week and you listened to Ross talk about carrying your cross, then you were challenged in your faith and uh, in a good way. And um, and so I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm excited to carry on in this series. Now, I want to address this week a much more inward struggle that we as Christians face, that the church faces as well. Uh, We're going to consider the dichotomy between the way of Jesus versus the way of spiritual achievement or following the rules. And and I want to begin this discussion this morning by talking about one of the most spiritual things that's going on in our nation right now. And I'm wondering how many of you have taken part in what's known as March Madness. Anybody been watching those games? Yeah, that's good. It's a joke. It's not really that spiritual, but I get it. Those of you who are big Ohio State fans, you're probably like, oh my gosh, why is he talking about basketball? It's not the fall. That's what really counts. Football in Ohio is better than anything else. Blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm from Texas. And uh, if you didn't know that, I hail from the great state, God's country. That's right. Little uh, something else you may not know about me, but I also went to Baylor University that's in Waco, Texas. And Shed a little tear for their loss this past week, but um, they made it to the Sweet 16. Um, we're going to talk just briefly about what's been going on. So as a, uh, a student um, who went to school in Texas, who's from that place, uh, before I moved here, before I moved to Ohio, before I left Texas, um, when I was at Baylor, that was the only School that I would ever root for in any kind of competition, whether it be football or basketball or anything. If any team within the conference, whether it be University of Texas or Oklahoma or Kansas or anyone played Baylor, I would always root for Baylor and I would root for the other team to get not only beat, but hurt, decimated, maybe even like the quarterback, like have his elbow dislocated. It didn't matter to me. I just wanted Baylor to win. That was it. But then something strange happened. When I moved away from Texas and I moved a little bit northeast from there to Kentucky, where I met my wife, who I think will also win the tournament that we're about to see happen this weekend. Um, When I moved up, my affinity for all things Big 12 grew. Like, while while once I only rooted for for Baylor in the Big 12, all of a sudden I noticed myself rooting for other Big 12 teams. When I saw the University of Texas play another school outside of the conference, I would root for them. Or even if I saw the Sooners play. um, If I saw them play someone else, like maybe Michigan, I would root for the Sooners. You know, and, and, and I wonder how many of you have experienced this during the tournament. I wonder as you've watched some of the games because your beloved Buckeyes weren't in the tournament. <laughs> um, just joking. I, I, I want to make friends today, not enemies. I genuinely, um, 
But I wonder, I wonder, as you've been watching the tournament, if you've also been rooting for those other teams that are part of the Big Ten. I mean, there's a great showing in, well, there was, a great showing in the tournament, right? I mean, let's see. Did you root for Wisconsin to beat the other team because, you know, they're a Big Ten school? Did did you root for Northwestern or Michigan State? I know you didn't root for Michigan, but whatever. Um, You know, Purdue. Minnesota, did you root for these teams because they're a part of the Big Ten and you realize that your conference matters? It's not just your, the, the school that you love so much, right? Well, this line of thinking, the idea that, uh, that there's the, the bigger thing that's going on, in this case, the conference still matters to us. It helps me to understand a little bit more about the tension that Christians have to walk out in regard to following Jesus versus following the law. The New Testament is full of conversations about this tension. You'll hear Paul address it in terms of how we are saved, right? It's by grace through faith and not by works. Um, you, You hear James say that faith without works is dead. There's tension. Even though they're really saying the same thing, when we read those things, we experience that tension. And, 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 and if we only, as Christians, if we only follow the law but have no faith, are we saved? It's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Or, or if we believe that Jesus is Lord, we believe that God raised him from the dead, but we don't do anything in our lives about it, are we actually saved? It's a good question, right? There's tension. How should followers of Jesus understand the law of Moses? What, what role does it play in our lives, particularly around our salvation? This is what we're going to discuss today. And we're going to look into a text that deals well with this tension. And I think it's going to help us see a clearer picture of how we should be following Jesus. Now, we're going to immerse ourselves in two primary texts today. First is going to be from the book of Hebrews. And the second is going to be, we're going to kind of be through the, the gospel of John. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. If you brought them, I always encourage you to bring your Bibles with you on Sunday morning. As we go through the text, it's just helpful to take notes. And you can write in your Bibles, just so you know, if any of you all are afraid of it. No, it's okay to write in them. Uh, actually, it's helpful because when you, when you take notes in the text and, and you, you're later reading that text some other time, you can come back and say, oh, I, I remember thinking about that or asking that question. It just brings back some of the stuff that you've learned. Of course, using your phone is fine. Uh, if you want to read the Bible that way, you can open up your Bible app and do it that way. I'm too technologically, whatever. Um, anyway, also, I want to make uh, something known. If, if you don't have a Bible, but you'd like one, uh, we do have some that we can offer you. Uh, just come find me at the end of the service. I'll make sure that you go home with a paper Bible, not a new phone or anything like that, but um, a paper Bible. So... Anyway, before we read this text, I want to give you just a little bit of background about the book of Hebrews. And this is primarily about who the author is. Who was the guy who wrote this text and what was he doing? Now, uh, we don't know for sure who the author was. He never says explicitly, this is who I am. Uh, scholars have some suggestions that, you know, they think, well, he could be this or he could be that. One thing that we do know, or a couple things that we do know, he was very eloquent. He was very educated. He was also um, very much in tune with what was going on. On to the uh, to the church that he's writing to. He speaks to these people in the same way that a pastor would speak to their congregation. 
He understood where they were spiritually. He understood what their tensions were, what their issues were, and he addresses them within this text. And, and today, um, he's going to deal, what we're going to read, he's going to deal particularly with the issue of the law versus the way of the Jesus. So I'll often refer to him as the pastor because I think of him as the pastor to the people that he's talking to. So let's, let's read this text together. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. The pastor says this to his congregation. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, the things that would come. But Christ, he is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Amen. And then if you were to continue reading through Hebrews chapter 3, you would hear the pastor continue to encourage his congregation to not be like the followers of Moses who took part in a rebellion that we read about in the Old Testament. It's a rebellion that ultimately prohibited some of them from entering into the promised land. And this is only important to note because I believe the aim of the pastor is to coach his congregation to not have a hard heart in any way. So there is clearly this division among the Christians in his church, a division that seemed to follow a Moses-Jesus divide. It was, it was like if you were on Team Moses, and this is where we kind of see that um, analogy from the beginning about March Madness. If, if you were on Team Moses, the pastor's encouraging you to support the other teams in your spiritual conference. Okay, and, and, and if you're on team Jesus, then he's saying, don't forget from where you've come. Believers either thought that Moses was important, was one side of the tension, or they thought that what happened in the Old Testament was unimportant now that the Messiah had come to them as promised. This tension, this is a tension that we still feel today. Now, I've been a part of the church for a long time, all of my life, in fact, and I've heard people talk about this tension, even though they didn't necessarily know they were referring to it. And I would often hear someone say, you know, we're under this new covenant with Jesus, so we don't need to pay attention to the Old Testament. We don't need to know what's in it. We just, we just focus on the New Testament. Any of you all ever heard that before? Something along those lines. Yeah, a couple people, right? Another way we hear it is that because we live under grace, the grace that we receive through Christ, we don't need to follow any laws. Laws are legalistic, you know, and in the church, this can lead to some very difficult tension when one believer does things that another believer finds to be sinful, and there's like this endless list of things that could, that could be considered sinful, right? Drinking, cussing, tattoos, dancing, who knows? I went to Baylor, dancing was a sin. Oh. oh. Sorry. Um. The list, it just goes on and on and on. But 
a much more serious issue arises in, in how we begin to view the love and grace of God in this light. The darkest problem that we have is not having a healthy perspective of the mercy and grace of God. And thereby not living in the freedom that we are provided by Jesus. If we live our lives on either side of this tension, if we live on our, our lives on either side of this tension, we risk living a life that lacks integrity with the gospel, one that lacks the vitality of a life lived with the Holy Spirit. So what the pastor of the church is saying to his con- congregation in the book of Hebrews is this. He says, he, he knows that, that the early Christians faced these two equal and opposite pressures. There was this position of traditional Judaism, which saw a clear picture of God giving Moses the law, the law that was designed to help the people of God live a righteous life. And that law was unchanging. It was unalterable. And if you followed this position, then Jesus only brought a new understanding of the law, which then puts Moses in a position of superiority over Jesus. It means that the law is still the shaping force of the people of God. And that God's new age had not yet arrived. And the pastor knows this is problematic. However, there's another pressure and position that's facing the church. It's the idea that, that God's new age had arrived and that, um, and that made others, they wanted to let go of the history of the people of God. They wanted to forget about it. It wasn't worth remembering. They were with Jesus, and, and, and Moses and his people weren't even worth their time or energy. The law was useless. The people that existed with God before Christ, they, they, there was nothing good to say about them. They were willing to lose all of their history because of what they had with Jesus. And so the pastor, he's quick to slow this movement in either one of these directions. And in doing so, he corrects the thinking of the congregation. Ultimately, he's saying, yes. Jesus brought the new age of God. Absolutely. This is a new time in the lives for those who follow God. All of those things that were leading up until now, they are finished. They don't get the last word. Jesus does get the last word. But that doesn't mean that those things were not important. Moses, God's chosen people, the law, all of these things are important to us because they've always been pointing to Jesus if we forget about them, if we don't know about that history, is it possible that we could even miss Jesus because we don't know what we're looking for? So yes, Moses matters. Absolutely, Jesus, of course, matters more. There's this distinction. And, and while Moses was a significant servant of God, his life was important to us, but he was not the son of God This is a position that can only be held by Jesus. And we don't diminish Moses by making Jesus superior to him. All we're doing is putting Moses into his established position. It's a position that has honor, but Jesus is primary. Now, I'm about to say something that's incredibly controversial. And some of you may disagree with me, and and, and that's fine. If you do, please write me an email. We can continue that conversation later. uh, and I, I think it's, it's a good conversation, but when the pastor says to his congregation that there is an established position within the structure of the house of God, that Jesus is the architect and the builder, 
And that Moses is merely a servant, I'm sorry, not merely, but that Moses is a servant within the house. He's creating this hierarchy, right? Jesus and Moses. And Christians who didn't have the background of Judaism, for them, Jesus was the only reason for their new life and calling. The pastor is then making room for them in the house of God too. And we see this most clearly in verse 1 of chapter 3 when the pastor calls to his people and he says that they are holy. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in the heavenly calling. See, under Moses and under Abraham, the people of God were called holy. They were the only ones called holy. They were set apart. And the pastor, what he's saying in Hebrews 3 is that we too, as followers of Jesus, are also set apart. We have the very same calling that they did in the Old Testament. We too are chosen. This is pretty controversial. Now, I want to be clear here, because as followers of Jesus, any of us in this room who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we are also a part of the house that Jesus built. We get to come in because he makes us worthy of entering his house. It's not by anything that we can do. It's not by our actions or our words or, or, or anything like that. But it's because he makes a way for us. The reason... and. Ultimately, this is the reason that Jesus is referred to as the high priest of our confession. Now, I want to explain this because this is, I think, one of the most beautiful things in this text. And I'm going to start referring into John, to the Gospel of John here. In John 2.16, when Jesus is clearing the temple of the money changers, he says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He's standing as he's saying this to the people. He's standing just outside of the temple in its courts where people would buy animals for sacrifice, where they would trade money. Now, what's the temple? What is the temple? What was it used for? The temple was the place. It was the one place where heaven and earth meet. God himself lived inside of the temple. Jewish families, there, there are stories about this. Jewish families would stand just outside of the temp- temple or the tabernacle. And they would look in the direction of the Holy of Holies, the place where God was said to have lived. And they would say to their children, there, right there. That's where God is. He lives there. And that's the closest that people could come to being with God. All except who? Who knows? Yell it out. High priest. The high priest. He was the only person who could go right into the Holy of Holies, right where God lived. And even then, even then, there was still this fear that he may not have been clean enough, that he his sins hadn't been atoned for quite enough, he wasn't sanctified, and thereby he would die. But he would he would go then into the most sacred place in all of Jerusalem, or when the Israelites were wandering through the desert, into the most sacred place in all of their 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 where they were living, in the tabernacle. And he would go in with the blood of the sacrifice that was meant to atone for both his sins and the sins of the entire congregation. He would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat of God so that their sins might be 
forgiven. No one else could do it. Only the high priest. No one else could do that work of sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat of God. But it's also something that the law by itself couldn't do. See, a high priest still had to do the work of meeting with God, of going into the Holy of Holies and asking for forgiveness. Now let's continue to look at Jesus here. Let's look at his life. We're going to be primarily running through the Gospel of John. Now this Gospel, the Gospel of John, is all about Jesus. We've got Matthew, which is too about Jesus, but it's really directed at the Jewish people. We've got the Gospel of Mark, which is still about Jesus, but it's really directed to the Gentile people. Then we have the Gospel of Luke, which is still about Jesus, but it's this historical understanding of who he was. And then John. This Gospel is all about him, his character, who he was, what he did, what he believed, why we should follow him. If you want to know more about Jesus, read the Gospel of John. But here in John uh, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, he sees Jesus walking toward him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, Jesus, he is the sacrifice that's used in place of the people so that his blood can be sprinkled on the mercy seat. Right? Jesus is the high priest. That's what we read about in, in Hebrews. He's the one who makes the sacrifice and then brings the blood to God's throne. Do you guys remember what Jesus said when he was hanging on the cross about all the people? Luke twenty three thirty four. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, he's the sacrifice. It's Jesus' blood that's spilled on the cross. He's the high priest who goes to the Father to ask for our forgiveness. And he's also the builder of the house of God, the temple. And if we look at the temple, the tabernacle, uh, a schematic of of what it looks like, it, it looks like this. It's broken into sections. This is actually the tabernacle. This is a tent that would have been built when they were wandering through the desert so they could meet with God. But later in uh, Jerusalem, when they were in Jerusalem, they built a, a solid structure. You'll notice it's broken up into sections. You, just outside of the, the outer courtyard there on the right side of the screen, just outside of there is where uh, the animal would come from that was going to be sacrificed, a bull or a goat or something else, right? And then in the courtyard, that's where the, the animal would be sacrificed, right there on the altar of burnt offerings, Then the holy place, if you move further into the middle here, the holy place is where the priest would go to prepare himself so that he could go into the holy of holies. So he could could meet with God and sprinkle the blood onto the mercy seat for the atonement of the sins of the congregation. See this process of moving deeper in. And with Jesus, with Jesus we have all of these parts of the temple fulfilled. He's the sacrifice for the slaughter. He's the innocent and sinless man who goes to the Father, asking God, his Father, to forgive us for our sins. And and what some scholars suggest is that the parts of the temple here, these parts in the tabernacle, they were known by other names to the Jewish people. This is just a suggestion, but if you look at this image, you'll see these three pink lines, right? You'll see the entrance gate on the far right, then kind of in the middle, you'll see the door and the veil. You see those pink lines? 
Well, they went by other names. The Jewish people knew these by other names. They understood them as the way, the truth, and the life. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus is introduced to us as the Word. John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt right there. It comes from a Greek word pronounced somehow. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. You can look it up. But the meaning of that word, the Greek definition of that word is tabernacled. It means tent. So another way to read John 1.14 is this. And the word, or Jesus, Jesus became human and he tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And in John 14, as Jesus is encouraging his disciples, he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. And doubting Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father where heaven meets earth except through me. The pursuit of Jesus, following him, is about trusting that only he can redeem us to God. Only he can cover our sins. And trusting that he will do it and that he has already done it. There are no rules that we can follow that can bring us to perfection. The the only way to the Father is through Jesus. The temple and the tabernacle, they were ways that allowed followers of God to demonstrate their faith. But Jesus ushered in a new age, an age that changed the role of the temple forever. It was no longer a place where someone would go to be forgiven. Modern translation of that is here in this church, right? That uh, someone might believe that coming to this building is what forgives us. Well, that's wrong. That's not true. Because this building is nothing more than an organized collection of building materials. Thankfully, it's a well-organized collection of building materials so that we don't die when it falls apart. But... As a church, as a building, if we were to close our doors today and choose to meet somewhere else, then this building might just become something else. Kind of like the Bluestone downtown. It used to be a church, but now it's an event place, right? How many of you have been to an event at the Bluestone? Not a church anymore. Not a place to worship God. The church, however, is sacred. It's set apart. And when I say church, I'm not referring to these pews or to these walls or anything like that, I'm referring to the people that come here who identify themselves with Jesus. The community of believers who gather here to worship 
God. That is the church. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. After Jesus was resurrected, while he was meeting with his disciples one last time before he ascended into heaven, fulfilling what he promised to his disciples that he was going to do in John chapter 14, that he would go and prepare a place for them, he says this in John twenty twenty one, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold from forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus is saying, we are the temple. We have the power of Christ within us. And we are now being sent by Jesus with that power to go out into the world as the church to offer the love and mercy of God. The love and mercy that translates into forgiveness. We, as the church, offer forgiveness This is the reason why following rules instead of following Jesus doesn't work. It's because rules don't allow for mercy. But with Jesus, when we follow him, when we offer Jesus, we also offer forgiveness. This is not only a privilege to us as Christians, but it's also our calling. I want to close today By reading again Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. And this time I'm going to read from Eugene Peterson's interpretation from the message. And I want want you to let these words just wash over you. Let them sink into your heart. Listen to them. And let them be an encouragement to you. Let them be your reason for loving those who are hard to love. Let them be the reason that you might show mercy to someone who doesn't deserve mercy. Let them be the reason that you delight in the grace that God has offered to you. And the next time that you find yourself at wit's end without any patience because you're cut off in traffic or your child won't stop crying and you feel like you're going to go crazy, Or maybe there's someone that you work with that just is intolerable. Remember these words and let it be strength for you. Know that you are a part of the family of God and life as his child means that you also live a different way now. So identify with Moses. Identify with Jesus. Identify with your confession in Christ And the salvation that it brings to both you and to the world. So listen to these words. So my dear Christian friends. Companions in following this call to the heights. Take a good hard look at Jesus. He's the centerpiece of everything that we believe. Faithful in everything God gave him to do. 
Now, Moses was also faithful, but Jesus, he gets far more honor. A builder is more valuable than a building any day. And every house has a builder, but the builder behind them all is God. Now, Moses, he did a good job, but it was all servant's work. He was getting things ready for what was to come. Christ. Christ as son, he was in charge of the house. Now, if only we can keep a firm grip on this bold confidence that we are the house of God. We are the house. Today we're going to finish with one final song of worship. And I I just want to encourage you to, to let this song be a confession to Christ. A confession for your thankfulness for who he is, for what he's done for you, and for what he's calling you to. So today, let's, let's finish by worshiping him in a bold way. Confident. Knowing that we are the house of God. So church, let's stand and let's sing to Jesus. Church, thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Today, I encourage you to go from this place as the church to bring forgiveness, to bring love and mercy to the world around us. Be the church to your community. Thank you so much for being here today. We'll see you next week. If you want prayer, come on down. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.